So, this is one of my favourite books. Um, it's a board book. It's a children's story. Um, it's called You Are Special by Max Lucado. And in it, we meet a little... I don't know if you can see. No PowerPoints today, sorry. But you can look afterwards if you want to read while you're having a picnic. <laughs> um, there's a little Wemmick called Punchinello. Oh, oh OK. Miracle. OK, we do have them. <laughs> so, Punchinello is a Wemmick. And in case you're wondering what a Wemmick is, a Wemmick is a little wooden person who lives with other Wemmicks in Wemmicksville. OK? The Wemmicks spend all day sticking stars and dots on each other's. Oh, like that. Okay? Um, to indicate what they think of each other. So stars are perceived as good and dots are perceived as bad. And you can see there, Punchinello is having another dot stuck on him by someone with lots of stars. Oh, I know. Um, anyway. In the story, Punchinello meets another Wemmick called Lucia, who has no stars and no dots. And she tells Punchinello it's because she visits Eli, the woodcarver, every day. So Punchinello one day also plucks up the courage to visit Eli. Eli has, of course, been waiting for Punchinello to come. And as part of the little conversation they have in the story... Um, Punchinello asks Eli why the stars and dots don't stick to Lucia. And Eli says, it is because Lucia has decided that what her maker thinks is more important than what others think. Now, I get really emotional every time I read this story to my kids. They're three and six. I'm not sure they get the metaphor. But I was thinking about it. I think it's because whenever I realize, whenever I read it, I realize how much I'm missing the point that how little I understand of this thing that I'm subscribed to as a Christian. Now, this morning, I've chosen to talk about Psalm 139 because I often have a similar reaction when I read this psalm. So I just thought I'd love for me and you to understand even just a little better the implications of being known and loved by God. And if you don't know him yet, I'd love to introduce him to you. So if you've got a Bible... Turn with me to Psalm 139 and we'll read it. And if you don't, amazingly, it will be on the screen. Okay. So. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue... Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, and night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Walter Bruggeman, who was a well-regarded Bible scholar, he described the Psalms as a window on the soul, reflecting the breadth and depth of what it means to be human. So, here's participation time. How many of you are human? Oh, good, most of you. That's good. Um, So... I have three things to tell you about yourself from Psalm 139. Three things about you and about God and you. Firstly, straight in there, God knows you. He knows you inside out. He knows you personally. He knows you intimately. He knows you completely. The psalmist says to God, God, you know me. You know what I'm up to when I sit down, wherever I go. You know what I'm thinking even, and you know where I'm going. You know even what I'm going to say before I say it. So we never have to explain ourselves to God. He has already searched our heart and read our mail. He knows what's going on under the surface, and he knows you better than you even know yourself. I can't think of anyone in the world that knows me that well. Jacques and I have been married for a short 11 years nearly, And thankfully, he's quite intuitive when it comes to me. He knows what makes me tick, and he keeps tabs on what I'm up to. You know, the other day, I'm traveling back from somewhere with the kids, and we make an impromptu stop at McDonald's. Hadn't spoken to Jacques all day. He was at the the office in London at work. The next thing I know, I get a text from him putting in his order for a Big Mac. I know, he was checking up. He must have been really bored because he was checking up on where I was on the GPS on his phone. (laughs) He didn't know I was going to say that. (laughs) But it won't surprise you that even Shark can't read my mind, nor I his, and we still end up in plenty of discussions (laughs) because we forget that about each other. Now, Jacques's mom used to tell Jacques when he was a little boy. He was really little. And she said, my boy, I know when you're lying. She says, it's written here. So one day, he's playing in a different part of the house to her. And um, everything's gone a little bit quiet. So she decides she better go and check what this little four-year-old or however, he was little, what he's up to. So she goes into the room where he is and she says, Jacques, what are you doing? Jacques, little Jacques, looks up at her and he goes, nothing. (laughs) I know, it's funny. He did know I was going to tell you that one. (laughs) 
So, generally, we only want people to see what we choose to show them of ourselves. Have you heard of the term face bragging? You know what it is, face boasting. It's when it's quite a negative way of describing the way some people put all their successes and happy times on social media. So, you know, all the happy holiday stories and the marathon finishes and the, you know, um, kids and cats and whatever else playing masterpieces on the piano, you know. Well, there was an article in the papers a couple of weeks ago about the impact that this is having on marriages. Um, lawyers reckon that it's contributing to rising divorce rates because um, they see so many relationships that are falling apart just purely because, or it's contributed to by people having high expectations and it's actually fueled by people, you know, that age-old pressure of keeping up with the Joneses, it's intensified because they're seeing all the happy stories of their friends on Facebook and thinking that's how their marriages should be and of course nobody's are um, underneath the surface. It's, um, we, we as human beings, we spend so, a huge amount of our precious time, energy and money trying to measure up. And at the same time, of course, we don't want anyone really to see what's going on under the surface. But Proverbs 11, verse 15 says, The hearts of men lie open before the Lord. So it's a little bit unnerving, isn't it, to think that there's someone out there that knows every thought and intention that you have, whether it's good or bad, particularly when that person is all-powerful and, you know, that someone is all-powerful and they are holy and perfect in every way. So, but going back to the psalm, in verse 5, the psalm actually indicates that God's complete knowledge of us isn't scary at all. It's actually comforting. He says, you hem me in behind and before. So the psalmist is speaking that it's, it's protection and surrounding. And he says, you've laid your hand on me. And the context of this hand is not actually punishment or discipline. It's, it has a sense of anointing. You know me and I'm anointed and I'm blessed. It's of belonging. I am his. There's no judgment that comes with this knowledge. It's actually just help from on high. He wants to know us. And so, not only does God know me, but my second thing for you is he is with me. He is with you. If you look again at verses 7 to 12, it says God is everywhere. And specifically, the psalmist personalizes it. So, he's saying God is with me. He's saying wherever I find myself even in the furthest and most unlikely places. So again, it's not a scary or an uncomfortable thing, but it's a comfort because in verse 10, he says, your right hand will guide me and hold me fast. A few years ago, I visited the Kango Caves, which are a chain of hidden caves um, somewhere in the middle of, in the mountains, somewhere in the middle of South Africa. Um, and we went on a little tour, and the tour guide took us from the entrance, it goes, I think it's over a kilometer from the entrance to the middle of the first cavern. Um, and the guide tells you lots of interesting facts about the caves and how they found them and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then when you are over a kilometer in the middle of the first cavern, over a kilometer away from daylight, um, the guide turned out the lights. It was so dark. You couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. You certainly couldn't move anywhere for fear of 
falling over or bumping into something. And I think in that kind of unfamiliar darkness, you can lose yourself. You need someone to come and hold your hands, to guide you. And the psalmist sings in the psalm, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. And the night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. So darkness, whether it's real or metaphorical, it makes no difference to God. He is right there with you, right by your side. Now, Corrie and Betsy Tenboom, some of you will have heard of them. They were two Christian sisters who found themselves in prison during the Second World War in horrific conditions um, in a German extermination camp. So that was where they were imprisoned. And Betsy died there. And Corrie miraculously survived to write their story. Now, the day before Betsy died, she whispered to her sister Corrie, we must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here. So Betsy got it. The psalmist got it. But do we get it? Although we accept these concepts intellectually, our minds get so easily distracted. We can know he's with us in our heads but we can still feel incredibly lonely or feel like God is really far from us because our hearts aren't always convinced. We get really wrapped up in our work or our activities or the people around us that we just forget. And business is actually a really key culprit. We have a wonderful, incredibly fast-paced, socialite, activity-worshipping city. Um, but the danger is that although we say we might say we believe in God, that he's with us, we, just, we still ignore him. So we need to allow the truths from Psalm 139 to work their way into our hearts, not just our intellect. Then they'll start to make a difference. Do you remember Lucia, you know, the Wemmick in the story that knew her maker? She believed what Eli said about her, about who she was. And that's the challenge of this psalm today. Do you believe what this psalm says about you? God knows you and he's with you. And here's the third one. He, in fact, also planned you. That's right. If you look at verses 13 to 16 of the psalm, he says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I always think that knitting is a, a great way to describe DNA because there's all those strands and lines. <laughs> I know. I'm not a bio biologist, as you can tell. Um, and of course, when the psalm was written, they knew nothing about DNA. Um, but the psalmist had a clear sense that this finely balanced and intricate piece of machinery that was his body was the work of a master craftsman. And now we as a human race, we have some amazing technological advances under our belts. And we have some really well-developed theories about how it all came about. And we've learned a lot about how our bodies work. And we keep trying to replicate it or bits of it. But no one has yet managed to design or create anything as completely incredible as the human body in its entirety. Only God. And he carries on creating it each time a person is conceived 250 times a minute. I've done my research. 
<laughs> so, and there's more though, because there's a dual reference in verse 13. Because the original language, which is translated as in most being, um, sometimes it's translated as kidneys. It doesn't actually mean the physical, just the physical elements of your body, but also the things that make up your body that are beyond biology. So like those things pertaining to character and personality. So your strengths and your weaknesses, your likes and your dislikes, your sense of humor, your Myers-Briggs profile, or if you like that kind of thing. God designed you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are one of God's wonderful works of art. So with this view of God, there's no room for any self-abasement or inferiority complexes. It doesn't matter your physical appearance, your sense of humor, your melancholy disposition, um, your funny accent. All right. <laughs> That'll be me. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever else, God planned you and he knit you together as you. Your parents may or may not have planned you, but your existence was planned by God. Beth Redman writes, a conception may be planned and wanted through lovemaking, or it can result from an encounter with a stranger or a miscalculation. It could be an encounter between two people whose names are never known to a child a horrific rape, or an incredible medical procedure in a laboratory. Whatever the emotional circumstances, as Christians, we realize that our conception is not a mere biological moment, but an unchanging biblical revelation that all of us are in God's eyes, predestined, planned, and wanted. Now... Just as a little aside, we, let's not ignore the fact that we live in an imperfect world where everything, even creation itself, is affected by sin and it feels like suffering is dished out arbitrarily. Um, the psalm should and does raise questions for us as created human beings. Verse 16, for example, it says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, I often question why God would plan some of the rubbish days I've had. You know, sometimes just for a good old laugh, I think. And um, that's a bit flippant, but it has serious undertones. We all have examples of suffering that we or others have had to endure. And we wonder, what on earth is God doing? There are times when I would quite like to take up with God his planning strategy. Um, and I, but I promise you the Bible isn't oblivious to this. And Psalm 139 isn't oblivious. Um, if you read the biography of David, who wrote it, you'll see that he knew a lot of suffering firsthand himself. But what Psalm 139 seems to speak to these issues is that God is deeply and intimately acquainted with you, with me, and interested, past, present, and future. And therefore, you are still part of his mastery regardless, and he is good, whether we understand it or not. Okay, so there's the three things. But the psalmist has, the psalm has even more for us, so, than this. Because being fully human demands that we respond, and the psalmist has penned a brilliant response. So we'll just whiz through that really quickly, because I know there's not much time left. Um, 
Firstly, and not surprisingly, we find adoration and wonder and praise. So in verse 6, he says to God, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And in verse 14, he says, I praise you. Your works are wonderful. And in verse 17, he says, how precious to me are your thoughts. It's like um, an involuntary reaction, like the wonder that you might, that might just come without realizing, without expecting it when you see a NASA photo of space or a sunrise or the birth of a baby or a beautiful piece of poetry. Um, but the psalmist also responds by making um, certain deliberate choices in the light of his reflections. So, verses 19 to 22, um, he chooses to align himself with God and against evil. The way the psalmist expresses it isn't how we'd express it in our day and age. Calling damnation down on others isn't our usual response to God's amazingness, really. Um, it's actually not very socially acceptable in 21st century London. Um, but... If you just pause a minute and put your Middle Eastern before Jesus lenses on for these verses. Are they there? Next bit. Is it not there? Oh, catch up. <laughs> I want you to see them because um, just to read them. What he's actually saying is, God, I'm on your side, not their side. They're against you but I'm with you, God. He's saying, your enemies are my enemies. He's, he's choosing to align himself with God. He's saying to the God who knows me and is with me and planned me, I choose to be your man or woman. So, and then in verse 23 is the final part of his response. The psalmist invites God to come, to be part of his life. And isn't it incredible that God, despite already knowing us and being with us and planning us, he still waits for our invitation. He, so the psalmist says, search me, God, and know my heart. Um, it's likely that the original context of the psalm was that the writer had been wrongly accused and the psalm is his plea of innocence. He's kind of saying, God, you know I'm innocent. But it's a bold invitation, isn't it? Test me, God. You know, expose my innermost desires and motivations. I mean, to be fair, when I pray that, who knows what God might find. It's not likely to be all innocence and sweetness, to be fair. But the psalmist is bold. His reflections have made him bold. And his response is essentially trust and surrender to God. Your way is better. So the psalmist decides... So the psalmist... Um, invites God to come, to deal with his anxieties, to expose and cast out any um, false gods, the older translations put it, expose anything that he treasures more than God, and to lead him in the everlasting way, in God's way. So, to finish off, right now, just as the psalmist did, we have an opportunity to respond, to ponder, to worship, to align ourselves with God and to invite him to come right now to deal with any stuff he wants to deal with and to lead us in his ways. And um, 
I wondered if we could actually, in fact, use the psalmist's words to kick it off. Because the psalms are meant to be used in this way. They're, they're there to provide us with words to speak to God when our own words are inadequate. And I thought maybe we could use these, own word, these words now as our prayer, seeing as they're already on the screen. Um, so I thought if we stand up together and then either out loud or in your heart, let's just say this prayer to God and then we'll wait and see what God wants to do. Does that sound okay? Okay. Um, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. <laughs> 